Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Deconstructive Kritik, or as we say in English, Deconstructive Criticism. I am Aron Flam, and today we talk to James W. Gesso. James is a writer, speaker, and host of the podcast Adventures Through the Mind, an interview-based podcast focusing on psychedelic culture. Before meeting Gesso, I knew little about him, but he came highly recommended from a Sweden-based network for science on psychedelics that I have been a member of since 2012. The interview went rather well regardless, which might not be so strange considering me and James share psychedelic subculture as an area of interest. And since, I have had a chance to listen to his podcast, Adventures Through the Mind, and I suggest you check it out if that sort of thing interests you. James is from Canada and has a history of problematic drug use. Part of his mission is exploring a healthier relationship to substances that can be life-altering. He has written two books on the subject, Decomposing the Shadow and True Light of Darkness. Links to James' webpage, podcast and Twitter account can be found in the description beneath this episode on www.aronflam.com. That's www.aronflam.com, which is basically my name.com. And you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook since I have been blocked from Twitter since a few days. I don't know if it is temporary or not, and in my case it might be well-deserved, but I do note that the same rarely seems to go for people on the left. Probably because that is a movement that stages large-scale reporting of individuals misbehaving, while at the same time behaving worse. The tactic is they start something and then when you respond in kind, they mass report you. Since Twitter was my biggest platform, your support is needed more than ever. Thank you who already support Deconstructive Critique on Patreon, PayPal or Swish. If you don't and want to, please do. The details can be found on www.aronflam.com and the Swish number is 0046 0768 943737. You can also find t-shirts and coffee mugs there to support the cause of liberty for all. Before returning to James Jesso, I also want to offer a short observation on the utter silliness that is Swedish politics right now. Stefan Löfven, our socialist prime minister, was voted out by the opposition, who crushed socialism, yay, for about a minute, before turning socialist and voting themselves out. Yes, they took the moral high ground and refused to rule with the support of the Swedish Democrats. So now we have the socialist Stefan Löfven trying to form a new socialist government with the support of our center socialist parties who call themselves the center party and the liberals, but are really socialist. They would protest and say they are liberal, but I can't help thinking that if you vote for a socialist government and a socialist policy, it is pretty hard to come out as liberal. And I know it's confusing, and I apologize for that, but please bear in mind that when you report on people who are utterly confused, the end result tend to come out confusing. 
And some confusion came up in my talk with James W. Gesso as well, but since the subject matter was of a more benign kind, so was the end result. James W. Gesso, enjoy. Welcome to uh, Deconstructive Criticism, James W. Gesso. Hello. It, it, it sort of uh, makes you think of Jesse James. A little bit. I, I remember when I was a small boy and my dad was really excited about getting the internet and his first uh, his first email address was like, Jesse James, some number at AOL or something like that. And you're from Canada originally. Yes. Uh, but now you're here. Well, now I'm here for less than 72 hours. How come? Uh, I'm here to have taught a lecture um, at the Synthesis Node. And I was brought in um, by, I'm not sure, it's funny, I'm not sure the name of the organization, but a group that in Swedish, on. it's uh, Centrum för Narkotikavetenskap. Uh, it means uh, Center for Narcotics Science. Ah, cool. Either way, they brought me in. We had a we had a lecture last night. It was very good. And then I'm on to the next place. Had limited time and chose to fit in more speaking arrangements rather than more time um, in places. So I guess more for... So where are you going next? I'm actually going to a festival called Sci-Fi that's in... Ludwarden, Netherlands, landing in Amsterdam and then getting on a shuttle for some probably ungodly amount of time to I haven't to get there. introduced you properly and I don't think I will. I and I will uh, instead ask you this uh, question as a starting point. Sure. What are you? Oh. Um well, that's interesting because it's a qualitatively different question than who are you? I am a sentient ape participating in this interesting mirage of intelligence that we have here in the in the so-called human world and apparently my place within it is to talk about things on the public the so-called public record particularly i focus on uh, issues that pertain to psychedelic culture do indeed i i haven't read everything that you've written but i i visited your webpage and uh, uh, got stuck for a while cool yes it was because I've done quite a few episodes interviewing uh, researchers in psychedelics, um, you know, uh, people from the STEM field, and they're usually a bit drier, and they don't talk that much about the spiritual side or uh, the psychological side of actually what happens to you as a person when you mm -hmm. take these substances. They usually talk about what happens in the brain when we take these substances in general, mm -hmm. uh, usually in some sort of statistical form. And uh, and the reason I, I focused so much on that when I started this podcast was I didn't want the hippies to destroy this movement once again. Hmm. Do you want, do you understand? I do. Uh, and when I got into your webpage, I got a bit worried at first because you usually start off at what could be considered a, a hippie vantage point, mm -hmm. and then you within a paragraph become quickly quite reductionistic hmm. <laughs> and return to science. So how how come you got into this field to start with? Well, uh, I got into the field, I guess, just because the context of my life brought me to being very uh, taken by it in some sense. Very how taken. So? How far back do we go? I lived in a in a fairly repressive Christian home, um, and repressive in in several sense. And as I started to rebel against that, the opposite of say very drug stigmatized repressive Christian home is very um, drug lubricated, expressive 
sort of lifestyle. And I ended up getting into a lifestyle that included a fairly significant amount of drugs, something that uh, socially might be easily um, labeled as drug addiction um, or becoming an addict, which is very problematic language because it comes with a a pretty heavy, heavy stereotypical image of like someone who's all heroin chic and destroyed and sunken eyes and scabs on their face and steals car radios from their grandmother and this kind of bullshit. Um, But I I did have the type of um, consumption behaviors, which I would say problematic drug consumption behaviors that led to a lot of damage in my own mind and into my relationships at the time. And it was actually... uh, How old were you when this... uh... In my early 20s. Yeah. And I, I guess comparatively to others, I did not go as heavy as others have gone. But um, contextually in my own life, I went to a pretty deep and troubling place. So it was actually psychedelics, LSD, that brought me into being like, hey, whoa, I could be totally free to be whoever the hell I wanted. And apparently that included... So you weren't an LSD addict at the time? Well, I mean, that's kind of a that's an interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting, yes, interesting turn of phrase. No, I took a lot of LSD actually at that time, but I also took a lot of um, amphetamine, street amphetamine, which likely had uh, several other things, including methamphetamine into it, smoking it, and uh, taking a lot of um, press pills and um, whatever powders were available, and uh, basically getting high four or five times a week for eight or nine months or something, and just obliterating all of my friendships at the time because you know, getting high was way more important than staying of integrity. What did you do for a living at the time, considering you could afford such a lifestyle? Oh, well, I <laughs> basically had saved up a bunch of money to go traveling. Okay. And I spent all that money <laughs> until I Going was traveling broke. inside. Basically, yeah. Yes. But that, it was funny because LSD said, hey, I could be whatever I wanted. I'll try this. I was an expression of the context I was in socially, which there was a lot of drug use where I was living in Melbourne, um, which is where I was traveling at the time. And then LSD was also the thing that said, hey, look at what you're doing here. What is this? And at the time, I, the what is it communicated in my mind as I'm addicted to drugs. And all of a sudden, the implication of implications of what that meant and how that has impacted who I am and the, like the, the relationships I cared about came with a lot of gravity and that sent me on sort of this spiraling motion like whoa how do i make sense out of all of this now and uh i'm also you know have a strong tendency towards intellectualism sort of ideas for ideas sake which i try to do my best not to get into because it tends to be a bit of a kind of like masturbation in some in some sense it's nice it's great but it's not really achieving anything and at the time that i was very heavy into drug use i was really intellectualizing my drug use with um with theories around the positive potentials of psychedelics which at the time was this irresponsible validation of destructive behavior, but later became the intellectual foundation for a much more mature um, usage as I somehow managed to discover that maybe utilizing psilocybin mushrooms or magic mushrooms to heal the damaging impact of my drug use would be a valid path. And it turned out absolutely was. And the time frame that I was using mushrooms to sort myself out was the time frame that I laid the um, the philosophical uh, foundations of of my work and of what seemed to be my path in life, which is 
writer, storyteller, speaking person on the stage. And psychedelics have just remained, they've remained um, a strong vantage point. And I also think that um, I believe in psychedelic culture. I believe it's valuable and it's rich. But you don't believe that psychedelics is for everybody. I don't. No, I don't. So you agree with uh, R. Gordon Wasson in that sense? Um, Well, I would have to know exactly what part of what he's saying I'm agreeing to or not agreeing to, but in the sense that psychedelics aren't for everybody, absolutely. But I think psychedelics... I mean, even in the shamanistic uh, tribes, the shaman is responsible for dispensing the mushroom, right? Or the entheogen. Yeah, I'm not I'm not the kind of advocate that says go out everyone needs to drop. I'm very mindful of 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 the movement not being damaged um by evangelicism. Um such as the uh, what was represented on the west coast with Ken Kesey during the you know hippie movement and on the east coast with Timothy Leary and the whole like Millbrook estate crew. Um, I'm very mindful of that. I'm also very mindful that I, like I said, I think psychedelic culture and the growing psychedelic culture presently is very rich and has a lot of potential to inside of the type of very mature thinking um, that can come out of um, mature minds exploring new dynamics of experience and new dynamics of thinking by altering their minds with psychedelic drugs. That there's a lot of value that could be had for the larger cultural or social narratives. But in order to get there, we need some sort of contributing factor that says these are important areas of of consideration to be to be put in to psychedelics. Like this is an important thing to think. Oh, you know, maybe psychedelics could be a, a reasonable avenue to, as a community, um, consider social issues. You know, to come together and think about social issues, or finding new ways of relating, or in particular, finding new ways of um, conducting ourselves in life. And I also recognize that that can be a little bit of a hard sell. So I definitely go in being like, yeah, bro, LSD, psilocybin, like, you know, psilocybin will change your life. And then once you get into it, it's like, oh, you know, my podcast is like psychedelic podcast. And then you start listening and you're like, oh, this is about trauma. This is about dying. This is about good relationships. This is about also cognitive neuroscience, anthropology. This is about politics. Is about more than aesthetics because that's part of what you're trying to do. Is you're trying to, to you're trying to take a lot of archaic knowledge about these substances and how they're used and for what, and you're trying to sort of uh, bring it up to date. Absolutely, I, I'm I'm trying to put as much valuable information into the melting pot of psychedelic culture as I can, so that uh, emergent intelligence that the emergent intelligence that's present in an active community can have that data. Why do you think that hallucinogens are so hugely important? Hmm, That's a good question. I mean, first off, um, the use of the term hallucinogens often comes... Okay, I'm sorry. Let's call them entheogens then. If you want to. This is is fun. This is a part of the fun (laughs) dialectic too, because now we're into the use of the word entheogens. This is also quite loaded. So oftentimes hallucinogens is sort of like things that are... uh, Although I think if you break down the term hallucinogen... Please, uh, could you just explain for the listener who aren't as nerdy as maybe you and I am, what the difference would be? Yes, this is what I'm getting at. So hallucinogen is often a term that comes with a loaded sense of what is experienced is not real. It's a hallucination. So these are drugs that generate hallucinations. Hallucination, generation, or genesis, hallucinogen. And then another loaded term, which is uh is much more popular now is entheogen 
which is like N within Theo, Theos, God, Gen, Genesis. So now these are now, they're not substances that generate hallucinations. They're substances that generate the experience of God within. Well, this is also a very loaded term. It's a little less loaded, say, than psychedelic, which comes with all the problematic stigma from the hippie movement and, and psychedelics being sort of wrapped up in this, um, this fairly ignorant stigma around drug use in general in the Western world. Um, but personally, I lean, I like to lean more towards psychedelic than entheogen because it has a very strong religious connotation or than hallucinogen because it has a very strong, um, trivializing yes um um sort of influence to it uh and though psychedelic definitely comes with this loaded like coming coming from the 60s and ken kesey and and tim leary and stuff i think it is a much more accurate way and even less neutral than either of those two because you can have a psychedelic experience and you can have an entheogenic experience you could take a psychedelic drug and have an entheogenic experience but i i I think that the use of entheogen is really a part of this Effort, an understandable effort to legitimize psychedelic drugs in our in our society by giving it a religious connotation. So you don't think we should go back to the original schizomimetic? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Yeah, although they definitely can produce schizomimetic states. They yeah. do. Yeah. Yes, uh, because that's what you're writing about. But before we get into the more metaphysical side of this, uh, I wanted to talk to you because I read an essay or a, a short essay that you posted on your website about the difference between organic and synthetic. Sure, yeah. Which is also a good example of starting from a hippie vantage point and then suddenly becoming very reductionistic. Could you explain your view on the difference between organic and synthetic substances when it comes to psychedelics? For sure. Well, I mean, first it would maybe be important to you know give the context that I'm responding to. Because there's a there's this context or this belief system or pattern that's often present in um, we'll say alternative communities that utilize psychedelics that suggests that um, if it's not directly from the whole food source, if it's mushroom, if it's not mushrooms or the ayahuasca or the peyote or comes directly from one of those things, you know, like some sort of uh, you know acid base extraction or something, well then it, then it's not natural. And then we get into this naturalistic fallacy and that because of this, it's like anything that's not natural is synthetic. And if it's synthetic, then it's not good because we're stuck in this naturalistic fallacy. And so then people go, oh, I don't take synthetics. Often people go, I don't take synthetics, except for LSD, which is technically a semi-synthetic substance. And what what I suggest in this and what my thoughts are on this is that it's really um, a totally unnecessary dichotomy to draw. And it's it's really based more on um, moralistic values than on any fact based education or fact fact based um, perspective, because when you look at you know mushrooms or ayahuasca or peyote, there are chemicals in there that are getting you high. And yes, okay, they come as a natural emergence of the biological matrix that has evolved over the course you know, of our planet's life to produce these things inside of this whole food matrix. Yes, cool. There are also chemicals that are present within them. Molecules. Molecules, okay. And when you look at, say, um, say, uh, what's a good example? For ACO-DMT, it's a silicon analog. It's a... So that's like a synthetic magic mushroom. Yes, it's, it's, it's not only like a synthetic magic mushroom, it's almost like a remix of a synthetic magic mushroom. So if you were to take 
magic mushrooms, psilocybin and psilocin are, are the two primary active alkaloids. Psilocybin is a prodrug for psilocin. Psilocin is what gets you high. If we're going to go really reductionist, there could be a lot of other factors there. But psilocin is what gets you high. Then you get the psilocin molecule, and then you alter it chemically in a way that nature would never have done, or seemingly nature, I'm making air quotes, would never have done. And you can get something like 4-ACO-DMT. So there's our representation. This is maybe about as synthetic as it gets. You make the original chemicals in a lab, you change them. They're nowhere to be found in nature. Okay, so they're synthetic. My proposal is that that's also a chemical. Now, understandably, so things that did not emerge out of the biological matrix of the planet are possibly going to, the biological matrix might not be able to deal with it properly, such as certain chemicals we produce to clean or kill things, getting into the water supply, killing animals, giving us cancer, whatever, understandably so. But when it comes to like these, we'll say, psilocin, 4-ACO-DMT, LSD, DMT, these are tryptamines. When we get into these tryptamine molecules, well, they do have a biological response in the body, and they are based in these other molecules that are entirely safe to use physically, and they, there's really no difference here. There's not like a, the argument that the synthetic is now fundamentally damaging because it didn't come out of the biological evolution of the planet is no longer valid. Because your point is that the scientists who synthesized these molecules, they are biological and they came from the planet. So in a way... Well, this, 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 is the, this is the next stage of the argument. Well, first off, it's like, well, it's just, it's another chemical. It's another molecule, just like psilocin. And also, the very fact that we could say, oh, well, this is synthetic, it's not from the earth, is wrapped up in this weird perspective that, you know, people who are in the alternative communities would otherwise chant against, which is that we are somehow separate from nature, which comes from this monotheistic um, sort of cult of the seed religion, which says that we are actually, nature is for us to conquer and rule, right? It comes from this to say that we're separate from it. But actually we and all our technological advances are an extension of the biological evolution of this planet, as damaging as it as it is, absolutely, we are still a part of the natural evolution of the planet. So, in that sense, you could even call four ACO DMT emergent from the biological matrix of the planet. And so now it's it becomes almost a mute argument. It becomes obviously not fact based. Yes, uh, I know. And uh, on one level, I agree. I think molecules are just molecules. I don't differentiate that much. But also, I know that if I took uh, pure psilocin uh, that was uh, manufactured in a lab and uh, organic psilocin that was contained in a mushroom, I would probably have slightly different experiences. Yes. Now, this is, this is the final layer to that. Now that we've acknowledged this, it makes perfect sense that we might be more inclined to consume or find a greater sense of peace with something that comes from a whole food. Well, that is one way to look at it. But what I'm saying is I think that just like alcohol, different types of alcohol will give you, you know, different types of uh, being drunk, uh, inebriation. And I think that, you know, how it's yeasted or uh, things that travel with it down inside you, set and setting is always important. Mm -hmm. That will affect your experience. So maybe we should talk about that. All the things that you should do to have an as good experience as possible on mm. psychedelics. Well, I think that's an important piece. And I like this. We're like kind of in the thick of it now. 
This is yes. good in a conversation. We don't know each other. We're jumping in deep and we're trying to pick ping- things out, but things will get lost. And I want to make sure that one thing doesn't get lost. Although these are just chemicals, they're different chemicals that open different doorways in the mind. And I think there's a lot of value. I want to assert, I think there's a lot of value in sort of working with something that comes directly from the land. And although I'll make this reductionist argument that they're ultimately, you could say they're all natural, or you could just say that that, that dichotomy between organic and synthetic is useless. But there's also, for myself personally, there's something to consider about consuming something that is its own intelligent organism. Mushrooms is its own intelligent organism. As far as we understand, it doesn't cognize like humans, for sure. But it is its own intelligent organism that has a place inside of the larger intelligent organism that is the biological well, it is, matrix. Uh, 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 it's not flora and it's not fauna. It yes. is its own thing. Right. And then you could even say things like the cactus, things that are flora fauna, that there's, it, it, it exists as like a whole, a whole, a whole thing, a whole living entity rather than just, you know, the emergence of a living entity's strange behavioral practices, which is the end stage chemical. And so there's a value there. And I think there's a really strong value there. And there's also a value in seeing what happens when we produce different molecules that open different states of the mind. And then we start to see what are these different realms that, of experience that are emergent when we alter these things ever so slightly. Now, I think there needs to be a responsibility to ensure that we're not producing things that as a consequence of, of them existing, we jeopardize the ecological integrity of the planet. Plastic, for example, right? But when it comes to these... I'm, a, I'm actually kind of a fan of plastic. You're a fan of plastic? I am, yeah. because I saw some documentary uh, that that is probably the only thing that is going to be left of our civilization for hundreds of thousands of years because it's so hard to break down. Do you understand? So it's sort of a monument of what, <laughs> of, of what we did here for a while, a brief while. Yeah, the, the, the very, a very brief while. Um, but, but, but yes, so I think it's important not to produce things that have create more damage on the whole than benefit. But then there's also... Can I tell you a, a small, just, uh, I just want to, there's a, fam- it's a conversation. Bring yeah, it yeah. It, it's a, I, I read a story when I was young in a book by Kurt Fottegut. It's uh, breakfast of champions. There's a brief anecdote about two bacteria and they're, uh, they're in heaven because they're surrounded by sugar. They're in a medium of sugar, which is their food mm-hmm. and their favorite thing in life. So uh, they're just eating and shitting and talking about the meaning of life. That's, what they're doing, right? But they never really come to the end before, before they, you know, uh, figure out what their point is, their uh, purpose in life. They drown in their own feces. So they never realized they made champagne. Oh, interesting. Yes. Uh, and uh, that anecdote got stuck in me. You know, they were destroying their own environment, but the environment became someone else's fun. Interesting. Yeah, possibly uh, we're in the process of re-empowering the, the, the um, plastic-eating mushrooms to dominate the planet after we've uh, thoroughly destroyed our, our, our current ecological situation to the point where human life is no longer sustainable. Could be. And, uh, you know, mushrooms as primary decomposers, they sort of decide uh, how the ecological system will function. 
For sure. So maybe we could start a political campaign, more plastic straws for our future mushroom leaders. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah. Um, no, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. We were we were talking about how to best make use of psychedelics in a as safe a way as possible, and also uh, not to destroy yourself, but to build yourself up. For sure. Yeah. So that be a, a segue to this is, you know, we produce different molecules, different states of mind can be open. We can find different places of value there, possibly find that there's no value there at all, but it's aesthetically pleasing, whatever, which is a value in and of itself. Um, but because of these substances, psychedelic, meaning mind manifesting or soul manifesting, depending on how you um, interpret psyche, psyche, delios, mind to manifest, then the disposition of your mind will make a huge, um, huge difference as to what emerges. Of course, the molecule itself, the substance itself, will make a huge difference. You know, peyote compared to ayahuasca, very different experiences. Ayahuasca being um, a blend of different plants, not its own, its own thing. But yet, the the mind state that you go in makes a huge difference difference as well. And mind state isn't just what you're thinking about or what you're carrying around at the time. But we, as often, we perceive ourselves to be individuals. We separate ourselves from everything else by the boundary of our skin, um, and we sort of construct these individuated identities, which are really a type of illusion. Even um, you know, on some level, right now, our our bacteria's are communicating with each other. They're actually blending. But it doesn't make practical sense to keep that in mind at all times. Well, absolutely not. It doesn't make evolutionary <laughs> sense to keep that no. in mind at all times. But, it, but it, because I believe that I am an individual, and I think it, has, and it makes evolutionary sense in the third dimension. Yeah. Yes. To, to, the, ba- the baseline is functional. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And at the same time, it can be problematic thinking because it can it can bring greater senses of isolation and often it can bring a lack of consideration to the web of consequences that echo out from the wake of how we conduct ourselves in the world if we think that we're separate entities because we're not separate entities although we do perceive ourselves as individuals with individual um personal needs personal boundaries personal desires etc so one other thing to consider in that is we're also not just you and I as quasi-individuals operating as individuals for biological evolutionary advantage, right? But we're also extensions of our environment as well, even all the way back to the gestational development when we're, when we're fetuses, we're epigenetically adapting to the environmental stimuli of, of the blood matrix inside of the womb, which is emerging as a consequence of how the mother perceives her environment and how she conducts herself nutritionally and socially, etc., and we are products of our environment, people as well as our food, our water, the architecture around us, the general social vibe around us. And so not only is it an important consideration when going into a psychedelic experience as to like where you're at in your head, you got a lot of anger or you got a lot of fear, you got a lot of depression or something, right? There's also the consideration of where are you? Who are you with? That will, that's a part of your mind. That's a part of what your mind will bring to the fore when tripping. And of course, then there's the consideration of, you know, how much of what are you taking? Now, that's a very complex and maybe uh, unnecessarily 
uh, unnecessarily long way of describing these three foundational pillars for preparing for a psychedelic experience and guiding. And which which are those three? Set, setting, and dose. Set, setting, and dose. And then the fourth pillar, which is emerging more and more over the last five or so years, which is integration, which is, well, okay, you had the experience, so what the hell are you going to do with it? Yes, and this is where you come in. Absolutely. And uh, and you work a lot with Jungian psychology. I am very interested in Jung, like a Jungian psychoanalytical theory, and um, I find myself really moved by it. Though I primarily read the sort of um, the students of Jung more so than Jung himself. I often find him a little impenetrable for myself. Um, and I, I, I'm like really appreciating recently people like James Hollis and also appreciating. Um, I don't know who James Hollis is. He's an excellent Jungian analyst who's written many fabulous books. I've had him on my podcast recently. And, and I'm also, I, I really appreciate models or theories, um, models being maybe the more practical side of a theory that have um, explanatory and functional power. And if it's easy to explain and it's easy to understand and it's easy to apply, I think it's a valuable and it's accurate. It's very valuable. How is it accurate? Uh, Let's talk about one of the archetypes I actually know, the trickster. Sure. Because in the Jungian analytical model, uh, and especially in the Western world, plagued, I think you would say, by monotheism, it uh, quickly becomes, in my mind, uh, I usually think of it like this. If what Freud was doing is uh, secular monotheism. Do you understand? It's um, I know it's secular monotheism. Yeah, uh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then what Jung was doing, uh, and I think he had his points, uh, I think he was right about the collective unconscious, among mm-hmm. other things, mm-hmm. is uh, secular polytheism. Hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because he seems to build it on, on the great arcana of the tarot. Mm-hmm. I also I think that in his work it go, goes beyond polytheism and into animism as well, like the living, yes. like the living, breathing, divine nature of everything. Yes, and this connects very much to um, the psychedelic culture mm-hmm. that we were talking about, doesn't it? Because it has, to to put it mildly, a pantheistic streak. Well, there's there, there's definitely a, a an ideological and philosophical uh, response to an experience of all life being infused with life and all things in life being alive in some sense and like breathing, touching, being able to have the feeling like the, the essence of all things. You're talking about ecstasy or euphoria or, or the, the ocean like feeling that Freud described that you can get on in certain religious experiences or in a hallucinogenic sure, sure, sure. psychedelics. Or, or even, even experiences of, 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 of like interconnectivity or experiences of, of other intelligence or noetic experiences, the kind of stuff that is quite common with psychedelics. Um, if they're held in the right context and there isn't, there isn't just like a, you know, primary focus on aesthetic and hedonism, which I'm, Totally not against hedonism. Don't think it's the most effective use of the use of these molecules. But, but I the also, only way, way to find out that hedonism is not the way to go is to try hedonism for a while. Absolutely, and then <laughs> once you realize it's not the best way to do it, it can be really uh, nice, uh, a nice, nice vacation location from time yes. to time. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, ooh, this is good. We're in. We're in the puzzle now. We're like. <laughs> we're in the puzzle. We're in the reeds a little bit, but 
This is good. Where were we? What are we talking about now? We were talking about safe ways to use hallucinogens. And I'm moving you towards trying to get you to explain uh, what the risks are with using these types of substances in an uncontrolled manner and what the benefits are. Right. The benefits of using them in a controlled manner. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm wondering whether or not I should deconstruct the question or just answer it. No, by all means, deconstruct it. Well, I think that there's a lot of value. There can be value in using it in in an uncontrolled manner in some way, Um, but there's a greater risk. Um, Yeah, this is an interesting area of consideration. I'll I'll just go into answering your question as you offered it. Dangers with utilizing psychedelics. Well, one particular danger is um, you have some sort of predisposition towards psychosis or schizophrenia and, or, or uh, mania, bipolar disorder, and an extreme experience, pardon me, uh, activates that. And now you're in a you know, psychologically distressing situation for the rest of your life. Now, the interesting thing to consider there is usually that happens um, people in their early 20s when they have their first psychotic break, for example. And it isn't necessarily the psychedelics that caused it because a death in the family or a car accident or, uh, you know, heartbreak, separation from a partner. These things can cause that stuff too. So that's not necessarily psychedelics cause psychosis, but um, psychosis and schizophrenia can be activated by a psychedelic experience, even if you set the context up. So it can act as a trigger. It can act as a trigger, yeah. So that's a really imp- that's like the number one safety caveat that if you listen to anyone that takes the moment to caveat on the risks, that's like the number one. Like if you have a history of psychosis or schizophrenia in your family, it's probably not safe to take this. And that's one of the main um, filters that the academic research has been putting onto who they let into the research. If they have a history of that, they're they're not allowed into the studies probably because they're mindful that they don't want any like uh they don't want any casualties. Yeah. I, I mean I mean that, that sort of would figuratively. Cut funding short, I think. Very quickly. Right? Yes. So they want to be able to say it's well tolerated by people who are properly screened and understandably so. So that's one risk. Another risk is really that you could get yourself confused. You could get yourself into um into highly distressing states of mind. You could um you could alter your um, self-regulatory systems, even your conscious self-regulatory systems, to a point where you do things that are actually quite damaging. And I'm not talking about taking acid and jumping off of a roof here. I'm talking about maybe not drinking enough water while taking MDMA or staying out all night and doing something that's really stressful for the brain, forgetting to eat and then having a hypoglycemic episode that you think is a bad trip and you start freaking out and go into a hypoglycemic episode plus a panic attack and then reeling from that later. And then now you have this like trauma based in this very distressing experience you had that that happened on drugs and drugs aren't okay. So you can't talk to anybody about it. Right. So these are, these are all dangers and risks. But that is a good tip that most, most conditions can be cured with a glass of juice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Low sugar, low sugar, half juice, half water. Um, That's actually a big one, a big tip that I got from a friend. It's like at festivals, music festivals, people are like distressed and don't know what's going on. It's like, well, they probably need to eat. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Lie down. Right. Um, and then there's other things to consider too. And, and 
Now this is this is this is tricky because I I tend to focus on this reduction. It's like let's stay in secularism mm-hmm. while also playing with like the mythopoetic potentials of, yes. of language and philosophy. But I sort of lean in like let's like have secularism sort of be like the soft boundaries that we're working from and not go too far off into left field, but not go too like physicalist in here either because I think we miss a lot. Um, and with that being said, there's this other. Cons- Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Concern about maybe taking the psychedelic, the aesthetics of the psychedelic experience or the, the emergent phenomena, the phenomenology of the psychedelic experience too literally and building sort of a culture or building an identity around that. And now this is tricky territory because really I don't know, but I concern myself sometimes about people who take a lot of psychedelics and then they're like um, really emotionally unstable in a way because they're just really open all the time or they have very strange ideas that disconnect them from other people, almost like, you know, almost delusional ideation to some degree or getting to a place where they're almost like high functioning schizophrenics that believe and see that there are, you know, entities and and demons and spirits everywhere and stuff. And then I also understand that possibly there are entities and spirits and other things that are operating non-corporeal intelligences that exist in reality. But my thing is like, let's try to stay in this basis of, you know, the soft boundary secularism and I, I respect people that go in that direction and hold their own and have very complex sort of models around it. But my concern is like maybe try to, if we're going to use psychedelics and we're going to use them deeply, let's try to focus on what might be most relevant to the lived life, which to me is personal, um, psychological health, physical, spiritual health, um, and social health, the integrity of our relationships um, and that brings us to trauma because that's yeah. where you see a big value for psychedelics. Absolutely. And and not just trauma in the sense of like a car accident or a rape or or um or, or war trauma. Of course, that's that's like the big thing right now uh, in the United States. MDMA right now is like a in phase three trials, breakthrough medicine for and PTSD. dying therapy. And dying therapy with psilocybin, yeah, which is yeah. A, also a big. That's a whole. That's a whole other thing. Let's stay with trauma for a second, because dying isn't necessarily a trauma. 
No, no. But it is in our culture when dying is the enemy, which it often is, uh, or death is the enemy. But I'm thinking more trauma in uh, in the sense of how do I go into this really simply? The maladaptive consequences of unintegrated distress and pain emerging in our personality and our behavior and our perception of the world. What do you mean by that? So um, trauma as an adaptation to unresolved pain that the pain remains unresolved. So the adaptation remains over time developing into a person's identity and then okay, the, so the trauma is not what happened. No, the, the trauma, trauma is, is a, the reaction to what happened. Yes, absolutely. The trauma is the end result of that adaptation to pain not being disengaged because the pain isn't resolved. And so we carry the pain around with us all the time. And when you say disengaged, what do you mean? I mean um, that we're no longer trying to protect ourselves from um, an event that no longer, an event that's actually in the past. So one of the key things about post-traumatic stress disorder is that there's this intrusion phenomena where all of a sudden um, I feel like the event from 10 years ago, say I was raped, all of a sudden I'm feeling it happening all over again, like it's right here, right now, like it's stuck in the body. And um, and that as soon as it starts happening, my biology, my my mind starts reacting to it, I get into a distress space, a uh, a threat space. And then I'm always say walking around under this constant chronic stress of preparing myself and trying to protect myself from not having the past come alive in the present again. I think it's Bessel van der Kolk that says trauma is actually, um, it's a disorder of the memory where painful events of the past are stuck in the present. And um, uh, physicians like Gabor Mate talk about trauma again, not, not as the event itself, but the, the, the consequence of that event that because the pain isn't resolved, it's stuck with us, the adaptation we have to that pain is stuck with us. And that adaptation is a disconnection from the pain, which is an authentic expression of who we are. And then we lose a little piece of ourselves, and we become this contorted caricature around that lost piece of ourselves. And we're distressed by being disconnected from it. And we're also ongoingly holding the, the adaptation we have for this old pain around as if we need it all the time, but that adaptation isn't meeting the present moment. And so it can become maladaptive. A great metaphor would be if, um, if yesterday I was in the Arctic and the Arctic was very cold and that was the pain there. And I put on a nice big parka, like, like a real heavy parka. That's an adaptation, a necessary adaptation to the pain that's happening at that time. Now, then I come to Sweden, or let's say I go to Mexico. It's much, I mean, Sweden's a little cool today. Yes, Maybe is. not parka cool, but cool enough for a jacket. But I go to Mexico, it's hot there. And I'm unable to take this jacket off because I'm afraid of the cold is still there. But the jacket itself now, I can't take it off because I'm afraid of the cold, but I'm actually now really hot. It's no longer adaptive, it's maladaptive. And I'm being harmed by the heat and say that, I've had this jacket on for so long, I don't even know it's a jacket anymore. And I don't know why I'm so hot all the time. And I don't know why it is that every now and then I get terrified of the cold, even though I'm constantly hot. So this would sort of be like a metaphor to describe trauma in the sense of Gabor Mate. So how would you deal with it then in a, in a, in a psychedelic manner? Well, 
This will be part of your shadow then, I suppose. This would this would be part of the shadow. Yeah, trauma is part of the shadow. And it nece- isn't necessarily like a rape or a car accident. It could be mommy never hugged you. Yes, or it that could, you are the perpetrator. Right, exactly. Yes. Or, and and the fact that you're the perpetrator might come from having at Can one also point cause been a the disconnect. victim. Well, it could have been because you were the victim, and now you have this like multi layers of issues, right? So could be. Um, so, how do psychedelics come into this? Now, I, first, I want to say, uh, you know, utilizing psychedelics to say heal trauma um, is like um, it's really it's really dangerous. I, who was it? Was it Albert Hoffman that had a? He said something like LSD is an extremely sharp knife, and in the hands of a surgeon, it can do incredible things. But in the hands of the child, in a ch- of a child, it can cause a lot of damage. So, I mean, that metaphor having been expressed, or I guess it's technically a simile because I said like, um, that let's just let's just let's put that as a part of what I'm about to say. The defensive mechanisms, the strategies, the adaptations that have become maladaptations that have become that we believe to be who we are, that we believe to actually be our interpretations of the world based on this maladaption to be actually what the world is and that our feeling responses to those, you know, interpretations being valid responses, even though they're actually us being afraid of the cold while we're burning to death. Right. Um, Those are logged into the way we perceive ourselves. They're logged into the, the baseline operation of our patterns of perception and our sense of self, our ego. Okay. We'll just they become heuristics right, we'll to just, deal with mundane, everyday, routine situations. Sure, but they also become who we believe ourselves to be. Yes, right? of course. And so we'll call it the ego, although calling it the ego is kind of like using a hammer to... It's, it's a hammer, so we'll just call it that. And what happens when we take psychedelics is the normal patterns of perception. The ego disintegrates. It really, like, literally disintegrates. Well, literally, it's figuratively. It, it starts to come apart. Because that's what recent research has shown, that among other substances, LSD does. It sort of uh, breaks down the central hub that uh, organizes uh, and uh, collects information in a, in a way that we can understand it. And then, you know, other parts of the brain are forced to connect and speak to each other directly, right? Yeah, that's, that's definitely a description of the of And the that ner- central hub is sort of our, that's where the personality is sort of. Right, right. The they're calling that the default mode network, sort yes, of like I where know. we keep our keep yeah, our. Mind. I think that's kind of a cold name for me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with, with so I mean, there's there's also a discussion there about neorealism, and because we because we saw it because we had the idea and we saw it on the fMRI, that's what it is now for sure. It's in the brain, but either way, yes, there's evidence on both sides. There's evidence on the psychological and the phenomenal phenomenological side of the ego quote yeah. disintegrating and also neuro neurologically we see like oh the the areas of the brain that we associate with the functioning of the ego like just disengage and other things come up as a consequence of that so when the ego disintegrates so do the strategies that are protecting us from the pain but also carrying the pain around with us um, and so that pain can come up again but it can also come up again in a different way and if the structure is held, it can come up again in a way that allows it to be resolved because it can be attended to with a different meaningfulness. We could look at it from a different perspective. We could experience it on various levels of perspective. Say the issue was that we were never, um, we were never acknowledged by our father. And that like had a deep, like the trauma there is like we have a deep sense of inadequacy that we're 
constantly distressed by and constantly reacting to, even though it's not appropriate to the situation, while simultaneously conducting ourselves in a way that invites other people to perceive us as inadequate. So it's like we, we're in this, stuck in this vicious little cycle. And that's where we go back to all of a sudden, these early memories and this feeling of inadequacy. And it comes up and then all of a sudden, because the sense of self is disintegrated, we're back there and we're a child now. We're not an adult, but we're also still an adult. And we're feeling the child's pain and inadequacy in relationship to the father, but we're also perceiving ourselves as, as an adult safe in a room with, say, a therapist going back there while also simultaneously being able to put ourselves in the position of the father and seeing that it's like, oh, but he couldn't acknowledge because he never got love from his father. And now I have compassion for him. And now I have compassion for myself. And I'm also feeling all this old feelings that I've been afraid of my whole life. And I'm crying and I'm experiencing all of this inside of this larger context. That's like, there's somebody here holding my hand who's loving and supporting me. And that's infusing me with the sense that I'm loved and I'm safe. Or maybe I also have this sense of uh, the entheogenic experience as well, that all of this is being held in some larger, almost incomprehensible a connectedness. Uh, yeah. A connectedness, a field that, that holds me in a, in a whole other layer of, of safety and love or, or even, you know, making it realize like, Oh, like none of this was my fault. This is just larger patterns of dynamic at play that I happen to have been affected by. And then all of a sudden when some, an experience like that is had, and then an experience like that is then later systematically and diligently integrated into the sense of self through the integration practice. Well, all of a sudden, if most of the issues you were facing in this trauma were a reaction to unprocessed pain, a lot of those issues will start to dissolve away because that pain is now being properly processed. And if a lot of the issues were coming up because the nervous system, and I didn't go deep into this, but the nervous system is responding um, as a threat to anything that brings about a sense of that pain being there or the, or the pain, the inadequacy coming up, then all of a sudden the nervous system doesn't have to launch a threat response anymore. And so then there's less chronic stress. And if there's less chronic stress, the brain can heal itself. You're less likely to make impulsive actions. So here's one way that psychedelic psilocybin in particular could help resolve this trauma. It with, sounded a lot more like MDMA, but yeah. Well, this is, this is the thing with MDMA is that MDMA does something similar, but the but, difference is you go in already, like you've got that loving, safe, compassion feeling in you. It's like you're going in, I think Ben Sessa calls it like a, a like a bulletproof vest to go into the war zone of your trauma. I mean, sometimes literally the war zone because they're doing it with veterans. Um, but then all of a sudden you feel entirely safe to go back to that place and hold yourself in this compassion awareness and see the larger context because you don't have to engage this threat response. In my experience, the problem I think with MDMA is that it's so hard to retain the emotional insight when you return to the baseline. Mm. Yeah, and it, it's easy to forget a lot of the things because you it's said. an emotional insight. It's not an intellectual one. That's how I differentiate between the two, anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, although I, I shouldn't lay that on you because uh, then we'd have to go into dichotomies sure. within psychedelics and. Uh, we're talking at a sort of a psychedelic 101 level here, I suppose. Well, I think we've I think we've gone to to 201 to some degree uh, All right. at, at this point. But um, yeah, I, I think. Um, uh, I, and do you have any examples yourself of uh, confronting your own shadow? 
You, you know, a funny thing is, I have a, a sort of a, a mantra, a paraphrase I've, I, I borrowed from a book I read when I was young that I always say before I take uh, a psychedelic, which is, uh, I shall let my fear pass over me and through me until only I remain. Hmm. It is from Frank Herbert's June. So yeah. It's uh, kind of a sci-fi nerdy thing to say, but it's just a quick reminder for me. So do you have any stories that you can share? Uh yeah, I actually, um, I, I wrote a whole book of like of stories of me of facing um, dark aspects. You know, I, I, I because take, you've written two books, yes, yeah. and um, one is decomposing the shadow, right, which takes um, sort of an academic route to legitimize psilocybin for this type of personal personal um, healing and development work, and then True Light of Darkness, which does the same thing, but it does it from a story. <clears throat> Excuse me. Storytelling narrative. I had a great lunch before I came here. Swedish meatballs are delicious. (laughs) So we'll keep that burp, actually, Marcus. (laughs) So um, uh, because that's a compliment to the chef. So um, decomposing the shadow. Because decomposing, I I noticed, it's an interesting choice of word. Yeah, it plays on this uh, on a metaphor that I present in the book about how um, on how the shadow, the unresolved aspects of herself, which could in, include trauma, but also include um, emotions that we're told to repress uh, in society. Sadness, um, anger is often told to be repressed, primary anger, for example, um, that it's wrong and bad, even though it's an essential an essential emotion that we have. And um, that the shadow is like, um, yeah, we're carrying around like undigested food in our stomach. And that when we let those feelings in, and by in, I mean like we let them into our full experience and we let them move us, we express them, we move with them, we cry, we grieve, we scream, we shake, we throw up, we just let it move through us, we surrender to it, that that's like a metabolism. We're, di- we're starting to digest those, those, um, those uh, undigested clumps of emotion. And the, the step from there into the decomposing metaphor is to then say, okay, well, now it's almost like we are, and the, the, the metaphor I use in the book is like we are a spiritual sapling growing into a, the grand tree, you know, that eventually will be old and fall over. Right? Well, well it does have a more eco-friendly ring to it than confronting the shadow, which is the way I look at it. Well, confronting is sort of like has this adversarial. Exactly. And it feels adversarial at times, but it's you. I know. Right? And it's it's <laughs> actually the most it's the it's the parts of you that that are most desperate for the love. It's not the parts of you that need to be defeated. It's the parts of you that need to be held. Now, I know that seems like a little bit strange, but the shadow, the pain, the grief, the inadequacy, these are all the parts of you that are broken. They, they need to be held. They need to be brought under the wing of your mature, adult, self-caring mind. They also fight dirty. Well, <laughs> aspects of them do, yeah, for sure, yes. in, in different ways. And it really depends on how, how you approach the situation, because why are we fighting ourselves in that experience? Now, some people, let's go into this you know, left field here. Some people might suggest that what we're confronting is actual sentient disincarnate entities, demons, parasites, etc., that we need to fight against and we need to go to spiritual war and blah, blah, blah. And that has explanatory value and functional value inside of shamanism. But that's not necessarily what I'm talking about here. So that having said, acknowledged, 
put back away for the no, listeners. No, 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 no. I'm fine with it. I mean, for me, that would be like a metaphor saying that uh, this demon is actually the sin of avarice. That is your, uh, or maybe it is your, um, uh, what you call the seven deadly sins. You have avarice, envy. Envy, lust, gluttony, sloth. Exactly. Uh, and these are all characteristics that a person can have within them, right? And you yeah. can call each of these sins a demon if it has explanatory value for you. For sure. But then if they're a demon and we're fighting, then we're still fighting ourselves and we create this infinite war against aspects of ourselves that actually need compassion and love so that they could be held, not that we're fighting against them, but that they're a part of our team in some way. Accepted and integrated. Yeah, not necessarily expanded and lived. But I think one of the greatest enemies we have, really, is the narratives of guilt and shame that try to top-down manipulate our behavior that we carry with us about how we're sinful creatures, for example. And that's used to manipulate us, which then we use to manipulate others, which creates resent and anger and misinterpretations of context and violence and conflict that's unnecessary and hatred that's unnecessary and... So there's something to be said there about um, fighting ourselves. And what I'm, what I'm suggesting in the book is that we're facing these things. They need to be held. We need to surrender to them and let them pass through us. Let them become a part of us again. The term I use in the book, which is very heady, is emotive psychosynthesis. Letting those old emotions come up and come through. And as we grow, and this is a Robert Augustus Masters metaphor about the tree. As we grow, we have these positive emotions. They're like the branches, the leaves. We have these so-called negative emotions. They're less comfortable, uncomfortable emotions, and they're the roots. And if we're not feeling those uncomfortable emotions, if we're hiding from them, we're going to have really short roots. And although periodically we might be able to blossom some nice flowers, chances are we won't be able to reach as far with our branches, blossom as many flowers, or blossom as many leaves if we don't have a good root structure. And furthermore, if a storm comes and we don't have a good hold on our roots, it's going to just take us down. So the suggestion that I say is that when we are with mushrooms, which part of mushrooms' role in the ecology of the planet is decomposers, they decompose certain things to then turn it into nutrients, into the soil, that when we use mushrooms to confront our shadow or to embrace our shadow, to go into the dark aspects of ourselves, we are decomposing the shadow. We're breaking it down and reconverting it into the raw nutrients that will fuel us to reach further out with those branches of joy and connection and community because we you know, work to build the canopy together while also simultaneously deepening our root structures and holding our own more firmly when the inevitable storm comes. I wouldn't have put it like that at all, but I do agree with the sentiment that you should accept who you are and, and try to make as good as use of, uh, of your bad qualities as possible. Right. And, you know, we could, just, we could just take it to that hippie level real quick and realize that that entire time that I gave this complex psychological and metaphoric, metaphorical example, I was basically making a case to love yourself. It, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, although not, in, not only physically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so the next book, book project, uh, you've already finished that? Uh, the, the true light of darkness. Yes, I have. That was actually a few years ago. My current book project is actually, um, addressing bad trips. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, so should we talk just, uh, quickly, the true light of darkness is also about the shadow. It's actually, um, 
it's actually the other side of decomposing the shadow. So decomposing the shadow presents these, this model that I kind of just presented to you. And it does so as presenting a model. And the true light of darkness explores exactly what that model looks like when it's applied into the lived experience of an encounter with the shadow. So one, this again, we're going into sort of, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm owning my, uh, my authority as a writer to take uh, mythopoetic language here. But um, decomposing the shadow really utilizes the head to explain to the intellect the logistical and the reasonable argument for working with psilocybin in this way. And the true light of darkness connects with the heart. It connects with this, this raw human capacity to utilize story, to share experience and wisdom on different layers. One layer being exactly what I mean to tell you. Another layer being the things that I didn't mean to tell you that were hidden in my own words that you discover. And then a third layer being the insights that emerge in you as the reader that I could never have prepared for. So from logos to mythos. Sure. And then the new book is about bad trips. Yeah, and that's still in the that's still in the working phase. I had to put it aside um, for a few months to come out here to Europe. Um, and it's really applying a lot of this, uh, applying a sort of um, a developmental psychology and attachment theory um, and tra- trauma theory and attachment theory uh, to the phenomenon. Uh, emerging inside of psychedelic experiences and utilizing some therapeutic approaches to working with bad trips in a way that positively impacts a person and looking at bad trips and saying, yeah, these are actually a thing, but like trauma isn't the event. Like uh, the bad trip is not the distressing psychedelic experience. It's if actually, you, if you use um, psychedelics sure. <laughs> for uh, Uh, not only euphoria, but personal development and the bad trips can be even more educational, I suppose, than, than euphoria, ecstasy, a feeling of oneness or the oceanic feeling. Well, those are, those are very positive experiences. And I think they're even more positive if they're, if they happen simultaneously as the uncomfortable experiences. And I'm certainly not making a case to say like we should prioritize suffering in any way. Although I do in the lecture, we we don't need to prioritize suffering. Suffering, James, it happens naturally. Right. Well, (laughs) there's there's different ways to suffer, which is a part of the lecture that I gave uh, last night here in 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 Stockholm. Um, But that's a larger topic, and I don't know what our time frame is. So let's just stay with what we're talking about here. I make the case to say that you know an uncomfortable experience in decomposing the shadow, I call it a hard trip versus a bad trip. And a hard trip is like, oh, when everything's uncomfortable, but you go through it. And a bad trip is when everything's uncomfortable and you resist and it becomes like exponential layers of anxiety. And then later you just try to get away from it as much as possible. And in the new book, I say, well, that that's part of it. But another part of it is the bad trip is something, it's a, it's a retroactive term we apply to uncomfortable experiences that were not integrated. The bad trip is like a type of psychedelic trauma where The, the hard trip is the car accident and the bad trip is the trauma that results from the car accident. But car accidents are not fundamentally traumatic because if they were every single person that got into a car accident would be traumatized, but that's not the case. So then I talk about if that's the case, well, how do we address this? And how, in order to address a bad trip, we need to understand, well, where did it come from? Aldous Huxley, I don't know, you've probably read The Doors of Perception and the follow-up essay he wrote some years Heaven later. Heaven and Hell, yes. Because yeah. it sounds like uh, your entire oeuvre, by the time you're done, will be 
sort of a an expansion of first heaven and then hell. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time since I read uh, read that particular thing. I was one of the first. So books worst I trip, read. go. Worst trip. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Worst trip. Where? When? How much? Okay, so I was uh, I was at a I was at a music festival, and um, I spent most of this music festival selling books. This is a really the the only way that I survive economically right now is because I have an incredible group of people who believe in what I do, and they're my patrons on Patreon. And I get to travel around, and then I have another incredible group of people that's constantly transforming, and they choose to buy my books. And festivals are a great place to sell books. And I, especially in Canada, I don't know what it's like here in Europe, but in Canada at festivals, there's this phenomenon of like the traveling drug dealer. They come to your camp and they say, hey, everyone, how's it going? Blah, 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 blah. Do you need any of this or any of this or any of this? And I take advantage of that. And I travel from camp to camp showing up and people are like, oh, cool, a drug dealer. And then all of <laughs> a sudden- Because you look I'm, like one. You don't look like a management consultant. Right. I don't look like a narc necessarily. <laughs> um, and then when I was like, you guys want to see what I've got in my bag? And they think I'm going to pull out drugs, but I pull out books. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you the fun guy? Right? Everyone wants to meet at a festival. So the novelty of that can be great for sales. Um, but so I went through, I, I sold a bunch of books at this festival and I, I had made a bunch of money. And uh, like the most money I've ever made at a festival, I, I worked hard that festival and I made like, I think I had a few thousand dollars. I've never made that much at a festival since then. I was really proud of myself. And at the end of the weekend, some friends offered me some LSD and I love taking LSD at music festivals. It's probably not the most optimal place because there's not a lot of room to lie down and just take in the wonder of stuff unless you're high enough that you don't care about it being the ground and people dancing around you. Um, but I went for it and I actually had quite a bit. I think I had had at that point, um, like three or 400 micrograms, which is maybe three or four times the amount that people would take on average at a festival. Um, not all at once, but over the course of three hours, I managed to get myself up there and I was, yeah, I was in a good place. <laughs> uh, and then the end of the evening, uh, or in the morning, like 8am or 9am, uh, somebody offered me to have some changa which is a smokable blend of DMT. It's an infusion of DMT on a leaf substrate that includes um, uh, some form of MAOI, which is a type of uh, enzyme inhibitor that, in, that uh, helps DMT you know, be more, like, uh, have a greater effect. It's what makes ayahuasca orally active. Otherwise, if you just drink DMT, nothing happens. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I had never had it before. And I had just had this beautiful night. I was feeling so open. I was feeling like that that picturesque, like, I had a good night. I had some yeah. fucking dances. I was. You had taken 400 micrograms of LSD, and you thought, I'll top this with some DMT. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. What a great way to finish yeah. off the night. I mean, after all, three to 400 micrograms of LSD is basically just base camp on Mount Everest. There's right. still ways to go. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder how high I can jump now. Yeah. Uh, so I thought this was a good idea. And I think, honestly, it would have been. <laughs> but, as... but I sat there. We prepared the pipe. And I had smoke. I took four or five big lungfuls. And I went into an incredible different reality. I was staring into portals that opened up into worlds 
of fractal beauty completely unknown to my mind prior to this. It was one of the most exquisite things I have ever seen. And then it got a bit weird all of a sudden. After a few minutes, I was like, huh, this is like kind of weird. After maybe 10 minutes. And my friend leans to me and he goes, I think there was hash in that pipe. Let me just tell you, if I'm on LSD and I take a puff, just a little puff, of cannabis, I'm in anxiety mode. I like, whoa, I, I, what's happening? I'm afraid. I never do it. Plus, I don't like, even if I do handle it well, I don't like the way it affects my cognition when I'm tripping LSD. So a puff of cannabis gives me anxiety. I had just had four or five huge lungfuls of hashish after a night of being awake on three or 400 micrograms of LSD. I did my best to hold it together until I was not holding it together anymore. And I had to go back to my tent where I then went through what was probably an hour to an hour and a half of a full blown paranoid schizophrenic episode where I relived my entire weekend and every camp that I went to with a collection of people following me. And those people were thieves. They were criminals that were at the festival and they were following me because they knew I was making money and they knew where I was camped. Now that I had all this money, they were going to come for me and they were going to steal my money and probably kill me so that I didn't tell anyone who they were. And I spent a pretty significant period of time. This is really fucked up rocking back and forth in my tent, holding my utility knife in case they came for me. So Sounds. that they wouldn't kill me until all of a sudden it occurred to me that actually I'm just in my tent and that's entirely unreasonable and that it, I, this probably isn't real. And I, I don't think any of this was real. And I got out of my tent and realized there's absolutely no way anyone could follow me. This is like a fucking maze. It's a jungle of tents. That was, I was just in a paranoid episode in high stress and anxiety for hours. And it really like kind of fried me out. And it was. And also seems to have a complicated relationship to money. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well there's the thing too. Like now we go back. Like, why was I afraid of losing the money? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I recognize it. I, I've had some horrible experiences myself, but I, I won't trouble you with them. I want to thank you for showing up. Yeah. Well, you know what? Like you asked me what my worst experience was and I specifically chose one that didn't seem at the time to have any value whatsoever. It was the consequence of very poor choices. I, the very poor choice was not to ensure, Hey, this is just Chenga, right? Yeah. Because I have this thing where I can't have any cannabis. Cause that's dose and also type. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was set and setting. Right. So like this, the set, uh, obviously I, I had some issues with anxiety, right? So, yeah. um, the setting, that's be, the mindset, right? Yeah. Being, being alone in my tent was simultaneously the best and the worst thing. It was the best because I had the least amount of external stimuli around me, but it was the worst because I was alone. I probably should have gone to what in Canada they call the sanctuary, which is where you go when you're having a bad trip 
and they give you a place to lie down and they give you food and they give you a hand to hold and like a big fluffy bear to cuddle and a blanket and stuff like this. They assess whether or not you have a medical emergency. And if you're not having a medical emergency, you're taken care of by people who are basically trained to support people through not therapy, but just trained to help them feel comfortable as they sort themselves out. Um, but it, I, it's one of the ones that I got probably the least out of, but it's a great example of a bad trip because I was very shaken by that. And I had like my nervous system was shaken by that for days. Um, and even now, as I tell the story, there's a little bit of a shake there. And also we've talked a lot about the benefits of psychedelics here today with a very small window on the consequences, but this is a great example of how, you know, misuse or poor choices can result in very damaging experiences. And I'm, which didn't have much of a learning um, element to it. No. Now, it has had a learning element because it's been something in my experience that gives me a place of understanding for others, and it has fed into my work and understanding of bad trips in a very positive way. So I've made positive of it in that sense. Um, but maybe this is, a good, this is a good story to get to in the end. It's like, yes, I'm very supportive of the positive benefits of psychedelics. I'm also very mindful of the fact that it could go very wrong. And that we can get ourselves hurt if we're not careful. And so I'm not advocating for taking psychedelics. I'm advocating, A, for obviously the ongoing development of psychedelic culture. Because I think psychedelic culture is going to be ext- extremely positive contributor to um, the hopefully the regrowth after the collapse of the modern civilization. Um, <laughs> yes. But but also um, that I'm, I'm advocating for responsible use and optimizing the benefits, not for wild use. Although I do support philosophically people to make whatever fucking choice they want. Yes, so with, do with I. With the substances that they take in whatever way they want to. I would also, I would add the caveat of do no harm, preferably not to yourself or to others. But, but it is always good advice to say to people, maybe you should go for the white belt before you do the black belt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Maybe do the bunny hill first. Yes. All right. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming, James Jesso. And uh, I hope to hear from you again. Uh, If not in Sweden, then maybe when I go to Canada or via Skype. Yeah, that would be wonderful. uh, Because I think uh, there will be more to talk about. I mean, after all, this is an interesting area of development. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Deconstructive Critique or Deconstructive Criticism. I am Aaron Flam, and my guest today is still James W. Jesso. You can find links to his webpage, books, and Twitter account on www.aaronflam.com in the description beneath the episode. And a special thanks to you who support this podcast via Patreon, PayPal, or Swish. I couldn't do this work without you. If you want to support this podcast, search for Aron Flam on Patreon, use the PayPal link underneath this episode, regardless of what platform you're listening on, or Swish me at 0046-0768-943737. If you're an English speaker and are dying for a t-shirt that says Crush Socialism, Socialism is Evil, followed by a giant heart to let others know we might hate socialism and want to crush it, but we don't hate socialists who are people and shouldn't be crushed but educated, 
Krossa socialismen, socialism i ondska hjärta in Swedish can be found on www.aronflam.com There are also coffee mugs there with the same uplifting message of hope of reason. Together with a t-shirt in beautiful Swedish sky blue, your feelings are hurting my thoughts, is a wonderful compliment, as well as a binary to the red Krossa Socialismen t-shirt, where the red t-shirt embodies Soviet brutalism. The blue, your feelings are hurting my thoughts, is inspired by the most vulgarly striking Americana, Anglo-Saxon philosophy, and ironically enough, realism in Swedish sky blue with print in golden Swedish sun yellow. The print features the face of comedian Aaron Flam, and that's me, between and above a roaring tiger and a former Swedish Prime Minister, Olof Palme, all set against the background of a waving American flag in Swedish colors, surrounded by an exploding plume of Swedish fighter jets, all towering about the name of the podcast, De Constructive Critique, and its motto, Your Feelings Are Hurting My Thoughts. Together with the red t-shirt, Your Feelings Are Hurting My Thoughts, form the primary geopolitical constellation of the post-war or error, as one never knows what might change in the logotype, buying one while they are available is always a good idea. Until next time, have a good unit of time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.